1: with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Warwick, Rhode Island. Warwick was founded in 1642 as a town called Shawamet, after the local Indian tribe from whom the land on the west shore of the Narragansett Bay was purchased. Two years later, Samuel Gorton sailed to England in the hopes of obtaining an official charter to maintain ownership and independence. His mission was successful thanks to Sir Robert Rich, the Earl of Warwick. When the charter was granted in 1647, the grateful townsmen promptly renamed the settlement after their benefactor and his family coat of arms became the settlement's seal. Nowadays, in addition to historic charm, Warwick also offers activities for everyone. It is surrounded by 39 miles of shoreline for boating and water-related fun, expansive parks, and a plethora of walking trails. Those with a flair for the dramatic can catch Shakespearean productions at the Sandra Feinstein Gam Theater. But in 1989, the drama that played out in a Rhode Island courtroom reminded residents of the famous admonition... Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive.
2: On the morning of August 11, 1989, Victoria Elizabeth Cushman, who went by Vicky, did not come into work for her scheduled shift. She was a warehouse manager at the Alpine Ski and Sports in Warwick, Rhode Island. Vicky was an outgoing and friendly 29-year-old graduate of the University of Maryland and a former United States Army intelligence officer. She lived in an apartment adjacent to the store. Because she just had to cross the parking lot to be at work, she often came in to chat with her co-workers even when she wasn't scheduled. Carrie Martin, a friend and co-worker, walked over to Vicki's apartment to get her. When she took the stairs up to Vicki's second-floor apartment, Carrie was attacked and clawed by Vicki's cat. She then went back to the store and asked two co-workers to return with her to check on Vicky. So one of the co-workers, Gary, walked upstairs to Vicki's apartment and heard the cat making very weird noises and standing at the partially opened door. Gary immediately knew something was wrong. Not wanting to touch anything, he pushed the door open with his elbow. Vicki was lying in a pool of blood on the living room floor. Within minutes of receiving a call, Warwick police arrived on the scene. Detectives found Vicky on the ground behind a chair on the living room floor, clothed in a pink bathrobe with her head in a pool of blood. A fire extinguisher, a pair of yellow dishwashing gloves that were apparently hastily removed because they were inside out, and an open handbag containing Vicky's wallet, cash, and credit cards were found next to her. Vicki was wearing a mouth guard, presumably getting ready for bed or having been in bed. Also nearby was a small jewelry box, the top of which was heavily dented. There was no indication of forced entry into the apartment, but there was an open window in the living room near Vicky, with the window screen leaning against the wall.
1: Detectives took photographs of the crime scene and objects of interest. This included a fire extinguisher, the dented jewelry box, and the open window, among other things. They took Vicky's address book to investigate friends and associates.
2: And now her address book back then is the equivalent of somebody's cell phone. Exactly.
1: On Vicki's table, detectives also found a sealed envelope addressed to a man. When they opened the envelope, it contained a letter written by Vicki. The letter said... Scott, I know how hard this whole situation must have been for you. As you said, a major dilemma. I wanted to be the kind of person who was strong enough to say, your best interests come first and I'll let you go easily. But I couldn't and I can't. I have so much fun with you. You are always making me laugh and I feel like a million dollars when I'm with you. And every time I look at you, my knees get weak. I get goose pimples all over and it takes every bit of willpower I've got not to maul you immediately. I think of you as soon as I wake up and you are my last thought as I put my head down to go to sleep. During the day, I wish for you to either call or come in and my day doesn't feel complete until I see you. I'm hooked on you. I love to kiss your arm where the elbow is. I love to nuzzle your neck and ears. I think your body is gorgeous and I love to touch it, running my hands over every inch of it. I strongly believe you only live once and you should make the most of it. We are too well suited for us not to spend time together. If I wait for you to try and work things out, I fear I will lose you. You are saying now that I can't lose you because I never had you, but you're wrong. We had a lot over these past few weeks. Something special happened that I can't easily deny or ignore. I know you are married with a beautiful little boy. I know you don't want to risk losing that but you admitted that things were not on an even keel at home. It sounds to me that making love with me won't make matters worse. I know that there isn't any kind of hope for us, but I miss you terribly already. I want to see you so very badly. Vicki. The name on the envelope was Scott Hornoff, and detectives knew him. He was one of their own, a Warwick police officer.
2: At the time of Vicki's murder, 27-year-old Jeffrey Scott Hornoff, who went by Scott, was a married man with a seven-month-old baby boy. He was a detective and a member of the Warwick Police Scuba and Underwater Assault Team. When Hornoff came into the police station for his shift on the afternoon that Vicki's body was found, he was read his rights. He was shocked at Vicki's death and further shocked that he was being questioned in connection with it. Hornoff submitted to an audio taped interview with Warwick Police Detective Captain Ronald Carter and Detective Lieutenant Edward Johnson. He told them he knew Vicky because he purchased job-related equipment from the sporting goods store where she worked. When asked if they had an intimate relationship, Hornoff said no. When asked his whereabouts for the prior night, Hornoff told them that he was at a party given by a fellow officer and his wife. He gave the names of other officers who were also at the party. As it turns out, Hornoff lied. He did have an intimate relationship with Vicky. Hornoff submitted to a lie detector test within an hour of his initial interview. However, in the pre-polygraph interview, he told the truth. Have you ever had a polygraph, Kath? No. Okay. Have you? (laughs) I had to, to get my job working with the homeless. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. What they do is whatever place you're trying to get a job is going to have certain criteria. So, for example, if I want to be a police officer, they're going to give me a polygraph on, you know, my history with drugs, my history with, you know, sexual violence. They're going to look at my social media. They're going to do all these kind of things. My history with crime, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, contacts with other law enforcement. So in a pre-polygraph interview, the polygrapher goes over all of those topics, takes notes on your answer, and he'll say, how many times have you smoked weed? How many times have you done heroin? All that kind of stuff. And that way he'll know what your answers are supposed to be. Then he gives you the polygraph and goes over all those same areas and looks for levels of deception that are inconsistent with your original pre-polygraph answers. So Hornoff explained to the polygrapher that he met Vicky, again, at the sporting goods store, like we said, in March of 1989, which was five months before her murder. On two occasions during a two-week period that summer, the two had been intimate. He denied involvement in her death and reiterated his alibi about being at the party. Hornoff passed the polygraph. Hornoff's brother, David, who was also a Warwick police officer and who drove Hornoff home from the party on the night of Vicky's murder, offered to take a polygraph test, but the offer was declined. So what happens is he had already lied to this captain about being intimate. So the captain finds out that he passed the poly and he finds out what his answers are. And now he's pissed because Hornoff lied to him about being intimate with Vicky. But basically Hornoff said, look, I know in an audio taped interview, you guys are going to play that thing for my wife. And if she finds out that I was unfaithful, it's going to come from me. It's not going to come from you.
1: And I don't intend to ever tell her. So yeah, therefore, exactly. I'm not going to say it on tape. Yeah. So
2: he, he said, I just was afraid for my wife finding out. And so the captain basically is like, OK, fine, whatever. And Hornoff went to his shift that day. Like he went back to work as usual.
1: Now, unbeknownst to Hornoff, while he was in his interview, two Warwick police officers went to his home and interviewed his wife, Rhonda, without telling her it was related to Vicki Cushman's murder. They said that he was involved in an altercation with a fellow police officer and they were investigating his whereabouts the night prior. Rhonda said they were at a party together and she and the baby went home between 11 and 1130 p.m. She said she heard her husband come home at approximately midnight and then he remained there the rest of the night. After the interviews, the detectives determined there was no action to be taken at that time, and they continued to investigate Vicki Cushman's murder. Vicki Cushman's memorial service took place on August 18, 1989, one week after her murder. According to an obituary in the Hartford Current, Vicki's memorial was held at St. John the Divine Episcopal Church in Saunderstown, Rhode Island. Vicki was born in Hartford, Connecticut, and attended Farmington's Noah Webster School before moving to Rhode Island with her family in the early 1970s. She returned to Connecticut for a year to take classes at the University of Hartford before enlisting in the U.S. Army. Now, Kath, she was actually assigned to an intelligence position, and she graduated from the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. That's badass.
2: That is super, super studly. I don't know, you know, how many people are aware of this, but if you go into any of the United States Armed Services, you take a test beforehand. It's called the ASVAB. I don't know what it stands for.
1: Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery. Oh, okay. (laughs) And here's how I know really quickly before you get into it. I think you never did this in high school, but as I've mentioned a couple of times, I went to an all girls high school. They actually had everyone in the school take the ASVAB when we were juniors. And that's how I remember it.
2: That is so crazy to me. I know. We didn't have to do that at my school. That's so funny. Like uh, all, all the girls. girls. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, though. Love then again, that was when high school was a feeder program for the military. Very true. But when you take this and I didn't know this until my son went into the Marine Corps and he had to take this test. You take this test and everyone who scores above a certain number, I don't know what the number is. They basically take all the kids who score high and they make them take a language aptitude test where they literally make up a different language and test them on their capacity to learn it quickly. And so my son had to take that test, but he was not invited to go to the Monterey (laughs) Institute, which made him quite happy. But it's like all these super, super smart people. I mean, she was obviously brilliant. Absolutely. Like Vicky learning five
1: languages. Yeah, she came out of there speaking fluent German, Italian, French, Farsi and Spanish.
2: What a smart, smart woman.
1: While she was in the army, Vicky also served in Kaiserslautern in what was then West Germany. Kaiserslautern? (laughs) Kaiserslautern. (laughs) She served as an operations sergeant directing a staff doing high security computer and translation work. While she was there, actually, Kathy, she received a bachelor's degree in German before returning to Rhode Island in 1986, which was three years before her death. Vicky was survived by her parents, a sister, two brothers, and a grandmother.
2: Warwick major crimes detectives worked every single angle they could think of, but detectives could not quite get Scott Hornoff out of their mind. And some of the major crimes guys believe that Hornoff was being protected by his superiors from further interviews and more intensive scrutiny. So there was sort of a tension surrounding this case within the PD. Anyway, in the months following Vicky's murder, detectives interviewed a number of police officers and their wives regarding the party that was Hornoff's alibi. There were conflicting timelines that he and his wife gave versus what some of the partygoers recalled. In an article in the Hartford Courant in 1989, Vicki Cushman's father, Robinson Cushman, made a public plea for help in solving his daughter's murder. He begged the public not to forget her. He was afraid she was being ignored as other murders were added to the detective's caseloads. He reminded the public that there was an $11,000 reward being offered. Vicki's family continued to pressure public leaders and law enforcement for answers. Eventually, Warwick detectives brought the matter before the grand jury in an attempt to indict Scott Hornoff on the basis of the inconsistent versions of his whereabouts. However, the grand jury did not believe there was sufficient evidence to return an indictment. The case went cold.
1: After two years without answers, the Warwick Police Department turned over the investigation to the Rhode Island State Police. It was actually reported, Kathy, that this was at the insistence of the attorney general who had been in turn pressured by Vicki Cushman's family to get the state police involved. And I kind of understand that it had to have been
2: difficult, Warwick police investigating one of their own. Exactly. And there were so many rumors right. that he was being protected. And I mean, just that kind of shade alone being thrown on an investigation. Of course, the family is going to want somebody else to investigate.
1: So the state police did get involved and immediately focused their investigation on Scott Hornoff. He was interviewed by state police investigators Richard Hurst and Thomas Denniston in 1992, interestingly, Kath, without an
2: attorney. You know, it's funny. Here's what happened. He called an attorney and said, hey, I'm supposed to be interviewed by these state police. Can you be present? The guy's like, no, I have a conflict. And so Hornoff just was like, you know what, I'm going to go anyway. And Kath, I think he thought he did okay in the interview. You know, the detectives told him, like, just give us your best guess as to timing with respect to this party. And he did. And that was that.
1: Hornoff was again interviewed a year later and the year following that. So it's now 1994. A second grand jury was convened, which is now four years after Vicki Cushman's murder. Hornoff and many other witnesses testified, including police officers who were at the party and Hornoff's family members. Although there was no physical evidence of any kind or any witnesses linking Hornoff to the murder, the grand jury believed that circumstantial evidence suggested his involvement and indicted him. Scott Hornoff was charged with first-degree murder in Vicki Cushman's death. Trial began on May 15, 1996, seven years after Vicky was killed. The prosecution pointed out that there was no blood, no fingerprints, no DNA, no witnesses, no hair or fibers pointing to guilt. However, they had the letter from Vicky, which they believed showed motive. Vicki Cushman would not give up on Scott Hornoff, but Hornoff did not want his wife finding out about his infidelity, so he slipped out of the party that night and killed her. The defense's position was simple. Scott Hornoff had an alibi and there was no evidence whatsoever at the scene that pointed to him. Rather, the evidence showed the murder was committed by an intruder.
2: The prosecution called Dr. William Sterner, the chief medical examiner for the state of Rhode Island. He testified that Vicky had suffered numerous skull fractures as a result of repeated blows with a 17-pound fire extinguisher. The autopsy revealed evidence of asphyxiation an initial disabling injury that rendered Vicky unconscious before she was beaten to death with the fire extinguisher. Dr. Henry Lee, a noted criminalist, testified that the low level at which the blood had splattered around Vicky's body established that the deadly blows were inflicted after she had been strangled and rendered unconscious on the floor. She appeared ready for bed, wearing a tooth guard and a bathrobe. Her robe was firmly tied and knotted around her waist. An autopsy ruled out sexual assault. Based upon the testimony by the medical examiner and Vicky's father, who had a telephone conversation with her between 9.30 and 9.45 p.m., as well as Russell Long, who lived downstairs from Vicky and who was working late and heard what he recognized as her distinctive footsteps, Vicky's time of death was established between 10.30 p.m. Thursday, August 10th, and 3 a.m. Friday, August 11th, 1989. The prosecution and detectives theorized that at some point, the assailant put on rubber gloves, arranged the fake break-in scene, including opening the screen above the porch window. Dr. Lee, the criminalist, surmised that in doing so, the suspect transferred the smear of blood on the window screen, which he found when he was examining the evidence. Now, Kath, I thought this was really interesting. That spot of blood had never been tested for DNA or anything like that. In fact, there was a Warwick police officer who took the stand and speculated that he somehow may have cut himself in examining the screen at the police station.
1: The prosecution admitted Vicki's letter to Hornoff into evidence and corroborated the extramarital affair by calling Vicki's co workers to the stand. According to court records, Vicki confided in fellow Alpine Sporting Goods employee Joanne Archetto that she was dating a Warwick police officer. Vicki said he was married, but she believed he was planning to end his marriage so they could build a more permanent relationship. However, at some point between the morning of August 8th and the morning of August 9th, things changed. Early Wednesday morning, August 9th, so this is now two days before the murder, a distressed Vicky told Joanne that Hornoff had announced to her that he wanted to discontinue their relationship and end it for his family. Joanne described Vicky as surprised and upset by what Vicky believed was a sudden turn of events. Joanne also described Vicky as angry and clearly intent in her typically aggressive fashion not to let Hornoff get off so easily.
2: You know, Kath, what's interesting is I read that Vicky was a very determined person and she knew what she wanted. She was incredibly, you know, like confident. Yes, exactly. And so if she was interested in a man, she would pursue him and she would tell him exactly what she wanted. That's the vibe I get from everything I read about her.
1: Another of Vicky's co-workers, Carrie Martin, testified that a week before the murder, Vicky told Carrie that she was not at all intimidated by Hornoff's marriage and that she was determined to keep their relationship. Now, Scott Hornoff knew that Vicky would not be easily dissuaded. And according to his brother, David, Hornoff even went to the extent, Kath, he brought his wife and child to the Alpine sporting goods store when Vicky was working in an effort to convince her that he was off the market.
2: I would be afraid. <laughs> I'd be
1: afraid she'd say something.
2: right? Like, hi, Mrs. Hornoff, do you know who I am? Right. He surely told you about me and our right. relationship, it's,
1: correct? I would be like, wow. Does your son speak yet? Because I'm his new stepmommy. Right.
2: <laughs> Seriously, that's, that was a bold move.
1: But that charade did not deter her. While Scott Hornoff and his wife and child were in the sporting goods store, Vicky passed him a note demanding that he call her.
2: Captain Carter and Lieutenant Johnson with the Warwick Police also testified. They testified about the first interview they gave Hornoff on the day the murder was discovered, August 11, 1989. They testified that Hornoff lied more than once, initially denying knowledge of Vicki at all, then lying about his intimacy with her. Significantly, although this was supposed to be an audio-recorded interview, No tape was produced by the prosecution. Hornoff's attorney insisted that this interview had in fact been recorded and he wanted the tape because he didn't think their versions of the story were accurate. But the prosecution denied that the interview was ever taped. Hornoff's attorney really wanted this tape, Kath, because he was insistent that it would show there was only one lie, which was about the fact that they had been intimate together. Any other lies that Hornoff was being accused of telling were fabrications. Rhode Island State Police also testified. According to detectives Richard Hurst and Thomas Denniston, during one of his interviews, Hornoff told them that he and his wife drove to the party separately. His wife and infant son left earlier than he did, and his brother David drove him home before midnight, dropping him off and immediately driving away. Hornoff told them that just as he was about to enter his house, he drove his car back to the party to pick up some cassette tapes that he left there, and then he came home. Now, Kath, one of the things that happened when these detectives were on the stand, recalling the interview, this interview was not audiotaped and it was not videotaped. And so these detectives had some latitude as far as what they wanted to say. And they basically made him seem like a cad. They said that in one of the two-hour interviews, Hornoff said that Vicky propositioned him and continued to hound him with phone calls. And he succumbed to her seduction. And he paid her visits for sexual encounters while on duty. Basically, he painted her as the aggressor and the person who was really pushing this relationship.
1: And he was the unwitting victim and had no choice but to go along.
2: Yes, So that's kind of how they were playing this to the jury. And other things the detectives did while on the stand was describe Hornoff as being remorseful and looking at the floor and intentionally implying to the jury that his behavior was sort of an indication of his guilt. Witnesses from the party testify that Hornoff drank beer as well as punch that contained, get this, this is from the court records, wine, gin, and vodka. Disgusting.
1: (laughs) Is this the same punch they had
2: all three? Yes. Ugh. I just, oh, wine, gin and vodka, (laughs) you know, and I'm a dirty martini gal.
1: It's like the alcohol version of an ambrosia salad.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) I like that. Uh. Anyway, they also told the jury that when Scott Hornoff left, he was in a very sociable, very good mood and intoxicated, but not as drunk as the others. Two witnesses took the stand and testified they saw Hornoff return to the party between 1 a.m. and 2 a.m., One of these witnesses was a police officer and the other was a police officer's wife. They testified that upon his return to the party, his demeanor and attitude had changed dramatically. He appeared pale, stunned, in a daze, and abnormally uncommunicative. He stayed for only a short time, perhaps 15 or 20 minutes, picked up the cassette tapes and left. According to court records, various versions of Hornoff's whereabouts were presented at trial. Some of the testimony presented by the detectives showed inconsistencies in time estimates from interviews given by witnesses in 1989, 1992, and 1993, as well as inconsistencies from the grand jury testimony in 1994. At trial, Hornoff's wife Rhonda Testified that her husband was home by eleven thirty, as she told the detectives in nineteen eighty nine. However, the prosecution brought to the stand a police officer named Steve Branch, who testified that Rhonda called him after detectives interviewed her and had confided in him that she did not know when her husband came home that evening. Why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigel who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health: their food.
1: What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health.
2: And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie, and even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell.
1: I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown.
2: Or crazy. A little <laughs> bit. So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com slash Killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com F O O D.com/killerD. Killer D.
1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. According to a June 21, 1996 article in the Hartford Current by Rachel Gottlieb, Hornoff's attorney, Joel Chase, said Vicki was killed by someone who broke into her second-story apartment. Court records show that according to the first officer on the scene, nothing in the apartment appeared to have been disturbed except the fire extinguisher and an overturned plant. A piece of rotted wood from the building was discovered in the garden outside the open window, and the flowers below the window had been trampled. The officers also discovered muddy scuff marks next to a pipe on the outside of the building. Now, the defense attorney was able to elicit testimony that the police initially thought that a would-be burglar had shinnied up the conduit pipe to the porch roof, gained entry to the apartment through the window over the porch, and was unexpectedly confronted by Vicky. The burglar then assaulted her with a fire extinguisher and ran. However, although the window screen above the porch was open, it was of the type that was designed to be opened only from the interior. And no prime marks or striations were observed on the exterior of the screen to suggest that it had been forced open from the porch. The screen mesh itself was completely intact. And the small smear of blood detected by Dr. Lee was near one of the screen's locking mechanisms on the inside of the apartment. Although the flower bed and dirt area below the conduit pipe were wet, and although there were two apparent muddy marks next to the conduit pipe, No mud or dirt was found on or around the apartment floor below the porch window. Lastly, her open purse, which contained her wallet, was next to her on the floor, but the money and credit cards were still in her wallet. Numerous other items of significant value, including jewelry, were openly located throughout the small apartment, but none had been displaced or taken. The prosecution used all of the above facts to counter the defense and asserted that the break-in was staged. Hornoff did not take the stand in his own defense. In closing argument, the prosecution portrayed Hornoff as a self-centered liar, while the defense pointed out the lack of direct evidence connecting Hornoff anywhere to the crime scene.
2: Seven years after Vicki Cushman's murder, on June 19, 1996, after nine hours of deliberation, the jury found Jeffrey Scott Hornoff guilty of first-degree murder. Hornoff told his wife he loved her and told his lawyer he didn't do it. He was taken into custody pending his sentencing hearing. Hornoff's attorney, Joel Chase, requested that Hornoff be released on bail pending his appeal. He also made a motion for a new trial. Both motions were denied. Judge Krause denied his request for a new trial, saying the state's case was, quote, presented so convincingly and with such compelling force as to leave no doubt here that Jeffrey Scott Hornoff was properly and deservedly convicted of first-degree murder, end quote. Vicki's family, on the other hand, were relieved with the verdict. Her brother told the Hartford Courant, it's just a wonderful thing that justice works. After the verdict, Vicky's heartbroken family reflected on her life, her brilliant linguistic skills, and her dream to have children, a loving husband, and a home. At his sentencing hearing, Scott Hornoff professed his innocence. He told a packed courtroom, Am I guilty of something? Yes, I am. I broke my sacred wedding vows, and for that I will never forgive myself. He was sentenced to life in prison and was transported to the Rhode Island Maximum Security Prison in Cranston. And Kath, in the preceding years before he was found guilty, Hornoff had a second son and his wife was actually expecting their third son when he was put in prison. So the little boy was born three months after Hornoff began his sentence. Hornoff's attorney appealed the trial court's denial of a new trial. But the appellate court found that there was ample evidence of Hornoff's guilt and that the ruling denying the new trial was appropriate. As Hornoff sat in the maximum security prison, his attorney continued to do motions and appeals and make every effort he could to free Hornoff to no avail. And by the way, Kath, because he was a police officer, as you can imagine, he would have been a target in prison. And so he served time in the segregated section, which housed prison guards who had been convicted of crimes, police officers and pedophiles.
1: Fast forward six years to late October 2002. This is now 13 years after Vicki Cushman was murdered. A Providence, Rhode Island criminal defense attorney named Bill Devereaux received a 7 a.m. phone call from a friend named Todd Berry. Devereaux met Berry seven years prior when both men were helping a mutual friend who experienced a devastating illness in his family. On the call, Berry told Devereaux that he needed help. Devereaux listened closely and began strategizing. According to a May 2004 article in the Wesleyan University magazine, after Barry told him his story, Devereaux immediately had him evaluated by a mental health professional to rule out psychosis. Next, Devereaux lined up an appointment with the Attorney General. So Kath, what I read is that when Devereaux met with the Attorney General, when they first sat down, Devereaux handed the Attorney General a handwritten letter by Todd Barry confessing to the murder of Vicki Cushman. Devereux said, as he watched the AG read this letter, he was sitting across the table from him and just watched him as he read. And the AG's jaw kept falling. Finally, the AG looked at Devereaux and said, mother of God. And then how do we know this isn't some kind of nut?
2: Right. It was probably like a gut punch. Right. This guy was very heavily invested in Hornoff's conviction.
1: So Devereux said to him, if you can prove to me that Todd Berry is a nut, no one would like to hear it more than his wife." I regret to tell you, I do not think he's a nut. When all the pieces are put together, you have a major league problem
2: here. Exactly. Because by that point, Kornoff had served six and a half years. And so what I read, Kath, was that Todd Berry was at a point where he was either going to confess or kill himself. He had started having flashbacks and was pretty desperate. So what he had done is he had confessed to his wife, he had confessed to his brothers, and they all supported him coming forward.
1: He was a 45-year-old carpenter, and he had no prior criminal record. He simply came forward because he was so guilt-ridden. Now, as we talked about, naturally, the AG's office had wanted to interview Barry, and Devereux said, like any good criminal defense attorney, "Uh, yeah, we need a deal first. Devereux presented the mitigating factors, like Todd Barry coming forward because of his conscience and the circumstances of the murder itself. The two agreed that Barry would plead to second-degree murder and receive 30 years eligible for parole after 10 years. A week later, Todd Berry sat down with investigators with the attorney general's office. And as part of this interview, Kathy Berry was super short tempered because he felt the investigators with the AG's office were super skeptical and didn't believe a word he said.
2: You know, and Kath, they have part of this interview on YouTube and Mm -hmm. you're right. You know, they're sort of like, and how did you know her? And how long have you known her? Like they definitely had the vibe that he was just confessing to confess. I'm sure because their boss did not want it to be true. Oh, totally. So what happens is Todd Berry loses his temper in this interview. And basically, he's like, why are you asking me these questions? I killed a girl. And so his lawyer's like, we're taking a break. So they take a break. He calms down. They bring him back in. And then they started getting serious about the questions. Tell me what happened. Tell me about the crime. That kind of thing. So basically what he tells them is that he's involved in a physical relationship with Vicky Cushman when he was around 31 years old. That's when it began. And I believe he said they saw each other off and on for about a year. Now, this was prior to Vicky meeting Scott Hornoff. Barry had broken it off, and he said that Vicky seemed obsessed and started showing up at jobs around Warwick, where he was working. So essentially, he stiff arms her and says, no, we're not seeing each other anymore. A number of months go by without him seeing Vicky. Then he meets a woman that he wants to marry. So on the night of August 10th, 1989, his girlfriend was away on vacation. So he went out to bars in Warwick with his buddies. Barry tells detectives he drank a lot. Somebody passed him a joint. So he also smoked marijuana and he said it affected him very strangely. He remembers only flashes of the evening. He remembers driving down the I-95.
1: OK, really quickly, I got to stop you there. You're Californian because anywhere else they do not say the I-95. It's just I-95.
2: Oh, how funny. Only
1: in California do we put the before any of our freeway numbers. Oh, how funny. Yeah.
2: Because I drive the 405. Exactly. And the 22. And exactly. <laughs> that's so funny. So he's driving down I-95 and he's determined to see Vicky, even though he hasn't seen her for months. And he tells him he didn't know why he wanted to see her. And as you're watching this interview, you get the impression that he's telling the truth. It didn't seem like he wanted to see her for sexual reasons. So he climbs up on her roof. Why? I'm not sure. And he gets into her apartment through a window. So my impression, Kathy, is that he kind of jumped down onto this like balcony area. Patio. Exactly. He goes in through this window Although he couldn't remember whether or not he tried her front door and he wakes her up and he says she was calm when he woke her up. And he also said during their relationship, it was not unusual of him to show up at night. So she comes into the living room and they start having a conversation and he starts telling her how he thinks that when they had a relationship, it was not a healthy relationship. And Vicky starts telling him that she was seeing a married police officer and that he was going to leave his wife and child for her. So Todd Berry was saying, no, Vicki, he's not going to leave his family. He's just not. So Berry is now trying to convince Vicki to stop seeing this married man. Then Berry says in the interview that things just got stranger. So remember, this screen is off the window. Vicky realizes that her cat went out the window. Now, this was an inside cat. Whenever she took this cat outside, she had it on a leash because she (laughs) I know she lived near a street, but she also lived near a parking lot and she didn't want it to get hit by a car. She sees that her cat is gone and gets pissed at him. And she says, if anything happens to that cat, I'm going to sue you. And he says he lost it. He just absolutely snapped, became enraged and attacked her, knocking her to the ground. In the interview, detectives ask, did you kick her or punch her? And he says, no. They're like, what did you do? And he says, I started strangling her. So he says he strangles her. And then he tells them, you know, I hit her over the head with something. And they're like, what was it? And he's like, I don't know. It was a box. It was about this big. And he's kind of describing the jewelry box. And he says, he smashes it onto her head. And this sort of like was what made detectives go, oh, my God, it's him because the jewelry box was dented in. It was like the top of the box was crushed. That's what he initially hit her with. Detectives never considered that to be a murder weapon, and it wasn't something that was ever put out into the press or the public. So now they're like, oh, goodness, this is the guy. So after hitting Vicki with the jewelry box, he then used the fire extinguisher. And he could not explain to detectives why he did this. He said, I have no idea why this happened. I was whacked out of my mind and Vicky did not deserve this. He also said that he knew his name and number were in her address book and he just kept waiting for the police to knock on his door, but they never did.
1: Once the information about Todd Berry confessing to the murder of Vicki Cushman became public, Joel Chase, who was the lawyer for Scott Hornoff, said this system started failing at the get-go when the Warwick police did not properly investigate the murder scene. Now, attorney Kevin Bristow concurred. He was a former state prosecutor who was appointed in 1995 by Warwick's newly elected mayor to evaluate how the city's police department had handled this case. Now, Kath, this is one year before Scott Hornoff was convicted of Vicki Cushman's murder. hmm but as we had mentioned, rumors of a police cover-up had dogged the investigation from the beginning, and this newly elected mayor wanted answers.
2: Okay. <laughs> when we were talking about this before we began this recording, <laughs> Kathy asked me something like, "Who was the one who commissioned this investigation?" And I said, "The mayor wanted answers," and she said, "The marijuana dancers." <laughs> I heard marijuana dancers. But I was like, (laughs) think about like the marijuana answers, marijuana dancers. It's the same. It's the same. And they could have wanted to
1: know, too. (laughs) It was a very logical question. In a 27 page report, attorney Bristow detailed lapses, inconsistencies and flagrant violations of procedure at nearly every step of this investigation, beginning with the handling of the crime scene. Police failed to detect drops of dried blood on a window screen. They failed to retain Vicky's bathrobe for testing, and they failed to compare fingerprints found at the scene with Vicky's own fingerprints, an omission attorney Bristow declared inexplicable. The report also said that the worst thing anyone could have done, and this, of course, being in retrospect, was for Hornoff's senior officers to afford him the protection that they did. All it did was make Hornoff look guilty. It led seasoned, intelligent investigators to believe there was a cover-up and Scott was somehow involved with the crime. Warwick police officers of superior rank were not allowing individual detectives to interview Scott Hornoff or his brother David. Instead, they sent the investigators to talk to a psychic.
2: This is all in the report. This was actually in the Wesleyan University magazine when he was recollecting back on what he had to do. Oh, wow. Because the mayor wanted answers. Marijuana dancers.
1: <laughs> Which is more fun. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Mar- marijuana dancers are way more fun. Exactly.
1: <laughs> now, Kath, interestingly, though, once this all came to light after the report was published, the Warwick chief of police and another high ranking officer in the Warwick police department retired. I don't have proof, but we all know it was retirement in lieu
2: of termination. Right. Like, don't let the door hit you in the ass. Three days after Todd Berry gave his interview to the attorney general, he was charged with second degree murder. Now, this would have been November 4th of 2002. That day, in a meeting at the prison, Hornoff was informed that Vicki Cushman's real murderer had confessed. Two days later, Hornoff was released on $10,000 bail until the charges could be vacated. Now, Kath, here's what's interesting. They had to bring Hornoff to court. And of course, he's in handcuffs. And he goes before Judge Krauss, who was the one who presided over the trial where he was convicted. So the judge has to ask the prosecutor, do you believe, you know, blah, 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 this is in the best interest of justice to let Scott Hornoff go? And the prosecutor, of course, says yes. This judge did not look at Scott Hornoff the entire time. And this was the guy who denied the motion for retrial, saying he did it. He committed evidence murder. was so convincing
1: nobody else could have done the murder it was that but kind Scott of thing. Hornoff
2: exactly so anyway, I read something later where Scott Hornoff was really mad at the judge for not looking at him, just not having the balls or the courtesy to look him in the eye so if you actually pull up video on YouTube of him being released at the sentence in the hearing. Mm -hmm. He is staring at that judge without blinking. He was totally mad dogging him. He's like, look at me, you turd. Exactly.
1: (laughs) He was trying to use sheer force of will to get the judge to look at him. That's
2: exactly the look on his face. I totally agree. Anyway, so Hornoff's released on $10,000 bail. Two months later, Todd Berry and his lawyers go to court and the plea agreement to murder two was accepted by the judge. So this judge imposes the agreed upon sentence of 30 years in prison, 15 of which I believe were suspended, and made him eligible for parole in 10 years. At the sentencing hearing, Todd Berry said, over 13 years ago, I did a horrible thing. I killed a fellow human being, Vicki Cushman. I've lived in torment since that day. Todd Berry is currently serving time in a minimum security prison in Cranston, Rhode Island. So, Kathy,
1: once Scott Hornoff was out of prison, Hornoff sued the city of Warwick, the state of Rhode Island, and the two state police investigators who interviewed him and then testified against him. He asked to be reinstated as a detective and get back pay, benefits, and a pension. He won the suit and was reinstated as a Warwick police detective. However, shortly thereafter, he retired on a medical disability. Hornoff was compensated approximately $600,000 in back pay and given
2: benefits. And by the way, with that money, he had to pay his attorneys and his wife for back child support. And he and his wife were kind of on the same page about everything. His oldest son was going to get ready to go to college and he wanted to give him some tuition. And so he was fine with it. Like he actually had a really seemed to me anyway to have an accepting attitude. But he wound up with very little money in his pocket from this settlement.
1: I also read it was no longer his wife. It was actually his ex-wife. They divorced three years into his prison sentence. Scott Hornoff now works on behalf of exonerees, advocates against the death penalty and is involved in the Innocence Project. In 2021, Rhode Island Governor Dan Key invited Hornoff to the Rhode Island State House for a ceremonial signing of a new law allowing payments of up to $50,000 for each year of incarceration if someone was wrongfully convicted. Hornoff credited State Representative Patricia Sherpa for taking up his cause. According to an article by Hans Scherer, Scott Hornoff said of his experience, There were a lot of moments of bitterness while I was in prison but I'm doing my best to leave the anger and the resentment at the door and not let it consume me. There's a lot of emotions going on. On one hand, I was happy for me and my family, you know, finally having this weight off our shoulders and this shadow taken away. I also felt a great deal of sadness for Vicky's family.
2: We've talked a lot about the injustice that happened to Scott Hornoff and the fact that he was wrongfully convicted, but really the story is truly about Vicki Cushman. And we want to acknowledge that and we tried very hard to find quotes from her family after Todd Berry's conviction. However, just like their demeanor after the first trial, it appeared that they simply remained private. They did not allow themselves to become fodder for the media. What we do know is that Vicky's father passed away in 1999, but her mother and her siblings were able to see her real murderer sentenced to prison. Vicki's ashes and her father's ashes were spread at sea off Newport, Rhode Island. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much. By the way, we got a really nice review from somebody who appreciates Kathy very much and she called it the best dipping podcast. (laughs) Loved it, my
1: favorite. Because Kathy now rejects it even though it was her who started it.
2: (laughs) No, I don't reject it entirely. I just think we were going crazy for a bit. Anyway, so there's another one and it's entitled Fuzzy Socks and I love this. The two of you are like a comfy pair of fuzzy socks. As soon as I put you on, I can kick back and relax and forget about the worries of the day. Nice. Very nice. I really like that. So thank you so much. We appreciate it.
1: If you have not given us a five star review yet, because you know Kathy's (laughs) rules, please do so. It really does help.